we want to tell you about a new podcast called Obscured that we think you'll enjoy. Similar to Bad Watchdog, Obscured examines critical issues that don't get much attention because they're complex, overshadowed, and happen largely out of the public eye. These issues are a lot like what we've explored in season one of Bad Watchdog, when we looked at the vital role inspectors general play in our federal government. Obscured's inaugural series, From Words to Weapons, looks at survivors of law enforcement trauma, investigating intimate survivor stories and controversial policing tactics like stop and frisk. Seasoned journalists and creators Emily Previty and Stephanie Marudis bring previously unheard voices to the forefront of the conversation, sharing stories that have transformed public policy. In this episode, you'll hear Emily and Stephanie's conversation with investigative journalist Brett Schultes as they unravel the intricate overlap between mental health and incarceration, both of which will play a part in season two of Bad Watchdog. For more compelling stories and in-depth reporting on these underreported issues, listen to Obscured by Covenda Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Obscured. My name is Hector, Hector Luis Rivera. We were all driving back from a gig. And woo, it was cops. It was police in this car harassing. Like, why? We weren't doing anything. We were just coming from work, basically. Performance, work. And so we just got stopped for like 45 minutes, checking our pockets, things like that. It was a stop and frisk. So that incident was kind of mild compared to... Still, obviously, inconvenience. The other incident was more violent. This is Obscured, the podcast from Cuvenda Media about critical issues that don't get much attention because they're complex, overshadowed, and happen largely out of the public eye. I'm Emily Previty, co-creator and executive editor of Obscured. On this limited series, From Words to Weapons, we're focused on survivors of law enforcement trauma. If you've been listening, you know that law enforcement accountability is a major theme in Hector's story and throughout the series. If you haven't already, we encourage checking out the earlier episodes. On this episode, my colleague Stephanie Marudis and I pick up with this theme of accountability with Brett Schultes. Brett is a Pennsylvania-based journalist who investigated how county jails throughout the state treat people with mental health conditions. Our conversation will delve into the obstacles that Brett faced during his reporting and how the lack of transparency can prevent accountability and obscure public understanding of these issues. Brett investigated interactions between corrections officers and inmates with mental health conditions and specifically how tasers, restraints, and other types of force are utilized within county jails. Brett draws a couple comparisons to the military during our conversation, And we should note that he previously served in the National Guard. Also, I do want to mention that Brett and I used to work together at WITF, the NPR affiliate in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. That's where he produced the project we're talking about in this episode. He's now an investigative reporter for LNP News Group in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
As part of that story series, I profiled a woman, her name's Kim Stringer, who is someone who has been diagnosed over the years with a few different significant mental health conditions. And at the time she was in her mid-20s, she lives in Bucks County, and her parents were trying pretty hard to get her involuntarily committed. Kim is someone who at the time was living in a shed in her backyard, even though she had a house to stay in of her own. She was drinking water from a stream because she was afraid that the tap water was poisoned. A year went by. I hadn't heard from Kim. I'd kept touch with her parents at times. And that's when I got a call from a woman who was at the uh, county jail in Bucks County, and her voice was really urgent. And she said, I saw that you wrote a story about her a year ago. And what she described next was really troubling. And it was also really corroborated by two other people who then called me. And then it was also ultimately corroborated by the district attorney and also records from the jail. But Basically, Kim was in absolutely horrific conditions in her cell. She did not have any clothes, and she was in full view of male and female guards. She was in her own excrement. She had not been eating. She had injured herself. And the description that I heard from some of the other women who were in that part of the jail was that they felt like she was breaking down. They described her as catatonic, and they were afraid that she wasn't going to survive if she was just left like that any longer in the jail. Kim also had been pepper sprayed several times, allegedly for not complying with orders. Well, if you have somebody who is hearing voices or somebody who is catatonic, not responding to stimuli around them, why would we expect that person to be able to respond in a timely fashion to an order? In journalism, where so often we report out stories and you never really know what happens or if anything comes of it. But in this case, we reported out that story and five days later, I think it was, the district attorney had her moved out of the county jail into a state uh, psychiatric facility. And it was the summer of 2020. I think this was on people's minds. There was a lot of scrutiny of law enforcement at the time in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. But here's the thing. Afterwards, people who work in jails or who are connected to them in, in different ways, they said, you know, there really is nothing unusual about what you described with Kim's situation. There are people like that in jail every single day who are seriously mentally ill, who live with a serious mental illness. and who are being mistreated as a result of it. I wanted to learn if that was true. And so that was the pitch that I made to the Carter Center. And that's what got me started on this story. So Kim's situation, what you learned is not uncommon. You go to the Carter Center, get this grant to do an investigation, and you end up doing a pretty deep dive looking into, I think it was 450 incidents in 25 county jails in Pennsylvania. What were you looking for? Um, take us through that process. The reason that we focused, first of all, on county jail rather than state or federal facilities is because county jail is the place where people with a significant mental health condition often end up. 
They end up there often on charges that are the result directly of their illness. It can be things like loitering, harassment, you know, public drunkenness, oftentimes minor charges, sometimes not minor charges. Sometimes, unfortunately, they can be significant charges, but frequently this is where people end up. And it's the county jail system, really, that also, when done right, or in certain instances, can be the place where a person might initially get some care for their condition. So I wanted to focus on one specific type of data that's available at county jails, and that is uses of force. I requested use of force reports from county jails so that I could better understand how prison guards were responding to people who were in crisis or people who were acting out in various different ways while in jail. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your top line findings? We looked at more than 450 specific uses of force over a three-month span at the end of 2021 in 25 different county jails. Those are the jails, by the way, where we were able to get data. Other jails didn't provide us with data. I should say they didn't provide us with records, which we converted into data. And so that's the limits of what we could look at. We found that in about a third of all uses of force, a corrections officer was responding to a person who either was having some kind of acute psychiatric crisis or somebody who had a known mental health condition who was identified as having a significant mental health condition that one might think would have led the guards to behave differently because they knew this person had a mental illness. So in nearly a third or about a third of all instances, what is the use of force? That ranges. That could be anything from using pepper spray, using shackles, using a something called a restraint chair, which is basically what it sounds like. It's sort of like a wheelchair that you'd be put in where you're sort of locked down and you can't move. So I think the assumption would be that in many of these uses of force, the reason the guards are doing what they're doing is because a person was posing a threat to others in the jail, right? Uh, they might be fighting, they might be assaulting guards, or they might be threatening guards. And in some instances, that was the case. But what really, I think, stood out was how many of these records involved people who were not posing a threat to others around them. They were either threatening self-harm or they had attempted suicide. So there is a lot to pick up on in that last answer. One, I wonder when you went to county officials, as I imagine you did, after you're reading some of these responses that seem to defy logic to a layperson, how they explained that. So one of the counties that we focused on a fair bit was Dauphin County. It's right in uh, Harrisburg's backyard there. It is in Harrisburg. And uh, Dauphin County uh, Prison has also seen a lot of prisoner deaths. For a few years, it had the highest number of deaths per rate of prisoners. And Dauphin County Jail basically said, look, we're always going to be using uses of force. Because a significant number of people in the jail have mental illnesses, that means we're also going to be using force against people with mental illness. Jails are the one place where everybody is sent because they can't turn you away. That's the way they put it. Keep in mind, they may not have been convicted of anything. 
Uh, we know that a significant number of the people are there pre-trial. And so the jail says, we would love to have fewer people here who uh, have significant mental health conditions, but uh, that requires investment in um, other systems, basically. We also were wondering about the database creation and records requests. You mentioned 25 counties responded. As any of us know who've done a project like this, that doesn't mean you call them and they send you the thing. <laughs> um, so talk a little bit about that. And then what response did you get from those other counties? Some people may not know all the ins and outs of how it works, but basically when you file an open records request, it's fairly common for a governmental organization, such as, for example, a county jail or a county, to deny the request. And then you could take that to the Office of Open Records on the state level and you can have them decide. The big takeaway for open records buffs on this front would be that it pays to deny your request because the county jails that denied my request, most of them won in appeal. The law is not strong in favor of the public when it comes to county county jail uh, records. And that's because it's pretty easy for the jail to cite a few common exemptions. They say, well, this record poses a threat to building safety. This record poses a threat to staff like guards. This record uh, is part of an ongoing criminal or non-criminal investigation. And so as a result of those exemptions, it actually was really uh, difficult to succeed in appeal in this case. And I think this is like actually worth pausing on for a second and thinking about the jails that we looked at these are the ones who participated. These are the jails that did just give us what we requested. You know, many others didn't. And some of them are pretty large jails across Pennsylvania that are avoiding scrutiny right now, such as, for example, Allegheny County. We weren't able to get records from there. Philadelphia gave us only aggregated data. What you were able to learn was that this is a trend that is common enough. The data supported it, that nearly a third of people who might be having a mental health crisis or have a known condition have experienced excessive force while in a county jail. Kind of big picture. How did you start to think about civil rights violations? Is it a civil rights violation? Is it maltreatment? Are they both? Yeah. And great question. And just to clarify, I'm sure the jails wouldn't have said that it was excessive force. They would have just said that it was appropriate force. But for many of us, when we stand by and, and read the actual reports detailing, for example, someone who is known to have schizophrenia, we had records that literally involved a person who was about to be transferred to a state psychiatric facility for their condition. And the person was told uh, to step forward so that they could be handcuffed. And the person didn't listen. I believe in that instance, they were shot with a taser. So they will say that it's not excessive force, but I think that's a, a discussion worth having that reasonable people can have. Your question about civil rights violations, I think, is a really interesting aspect of the story because there is a community of lawyers who have, to some degree, successfully litigated prisoners' rights around a few issues of the law. And one of them would be that the way they're being treated in jails is a violation of their rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the logic goes something like this. If you are somebody who needs to be in a wheelchair, for example, and reasonable accommodations aren't made for you while you're in prison, then that's a violation of your rights. Once you're able to also look at a diagnosed mental health condition, 
then failure to provide reasonable accommodations for those conditions is also seen as a violation of your rights. There are significant barriers to being able to actually lobby for this, not the least of which is that a person who is living with one of these illnesses is not in a very good place to document what's going on and to file a grievance and go through all that stuff. But there are people who are trying to fight this battle in various different ways. We've thrown around the phrase excessive force a couple of times. And as you mentioned, the legislators in this case at the county level and jail officials wouldn't necessarily say, hey, it was excessive. It was just we were using force. We are using the phrase law enforcement trauma in our series a lot because of that, because very often the threshold for excessive laws will turn that over to a prosecutor or to a law enforcement agency itself. But to pick up on that, state lawmakers and some others did respond to your series initially and called for action. Did anything actually happen since then? What was that, two years ago? Things happen in various fits and starts. For example, Act 106 was passed in 2019. It was supported by Republicans and Democrats and signed into law by then-Governor Tom Wolf, which allowed counties to have an alternate way to try to help someone who's in crisis. Basically, it changes the standard for involuntary commitment. No counties have really been implementing it. That's starting to change. One or two counties are doing pilot programs now. Mental health funding did increase a little bit in the last budget. I think where it gets tricky is when we start talking about the changes that would be needed to prisons, jails, and law enforcement, because that's politically a little bit more dangerous for Republicans and Democrats in different ways. And I think that's where we've seen more hesitation to change. We have seen suggestions on the Democratic side for doing things such as having an independent review board that would monitor what county jails are doing and would um, kind of offer different guidance as to how they could be improved and changed. But that's not something that's actually happening. And part of it, too, is that County jails are often seen as this sort of liminal area where a person just ends up for a little while and then they're taken to court and they're convicted or they're not. And so they don't necessarily get the same kind of resources that like if you were someone who was in state prison for five years or something because it's seen as more of a long term situation. And it's sort of like define long term, right? We've seen people now waiting two, three years in a county jail while their case is sorted out. And it wasn't great before, but the pandemic backlog obviously exacerbated that issue. So I guess it, to me, two or three years seems pretty long-term, I think. It's a stunningly long amount of time to spend if you haven't been convicted, for sure. And the pandemic era backlogs were part of the story we told at the beginning with Kim Stringer that played into that as well. I think the one thing that this brings up in my mind that we have yet to talk really about is why this is such an urgent problem and why it really matters. There are really significant consequences for when these types of violent, traumatizing uses of force happen to people in jail, like lasting trauma to actually 
in some instances, deaths are very closely paired with some of these precipitating incidents that have happened in jails where a person is out of control, they are pepper sprayed, they are restrained, and then they end up dying in prison custody. We've seen our profession hit hard over the years and coverage gaps widen as there are far fewer journalists working today than when we started out. The result is stories are simply being missed, especially what we call obscured stories. They happen largely out of the public eye and involve critical issues that are complex and often overshadowed. That's why we've launched Obscured, to help give these types of stories the attention they deserve. We value high-impact journalism and its capacity to broaden knowledge, catalyze public scrutiny, drive accountability, and shift policy. And we hope you do as well. And will please consider becoming a supporter of Obscured with a tax-deductible contribution before the year comes to a close. Your year-end gift will help support our ongoing research, reporting, writing, editing, and audio production that's happening behind the scenes to create the first season of Obscured and our From Words to Weapons series. Contributions can be made online at cuvendamedia.com support. We're grateful for you taking time to listen to Obscured and wish you all the best for this holiday season. As part of your holiday shopping, check out Mud Girl Studios for beautiful handcrafted ceramic art and gifts. When you purchase a handmade piece from Mud Girl Studios or make a donation, you're helping at-risk and economically disadvantaged women to create functional ceramic art and earn supplemental income. For orders and to learn more, head online to mudgirlstudios.org and you can find them on Instagram at mudgirlstudios. As part of Obscured, we've been telling you about other podcasts you might like. Democracy Works delves into a unique aspect of democratic life each week, including voting rights, criminal justice, the free press, and much more. Listeners have described the show as thoughtful, insightful political discussion and as a source of hope for American politics and the future of our country. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We were wondering about just even healthcare delivery and the access to healthcare coverage within county jails or prisons. There are some instances where somebody's healthcare will stop because they're incarcerated. And then afterwards, it's hard to pick up coverage again. There's been some talk about expanding Medicaid coverage, especially in this space. So is there any type of solution potentially within being able to provide healthcare that could address sort of mental health needs that create some type of foundational support? Well, you know, first off, putting someone in prison is, as you can imagine, an incredibly destabilizing event on multiple fronts. Imagine how you would pay your bills. Imagine the financial mess you'd leave behind. You now have no income you're bringing in. You have no job. You have basically just stopped your work. And also, what frequently happens is that people who were on medication end up going without their medications once they are in jail. And then Sometimes they are able to get a doctor within the jail to prescribe them what they had. 
Other times the doctor or physician assistant or nurse practitioner gives them something else. And so their meds change while they're in jail. You may find that you're in a cell largely by yourself because you've been administratively segregated, which is basically the same as solitary confinement. Just to kind of step back for a minute, the company that provides much of the medical and behavioral care for people in jails is called Prime Care. And you know, I spoke with Prime Care CEO and some of the other top executives there, and they'll be quick to say prison is a terrible place to treat mental illness. And they have a rating system. So every person who ends up in jail gets rated as an A, B, C, or D. But one of their estimates, about half the people in jails have a C or D rating. Many fewer have the D rating, which is the most acute. But we're talking about people who have an ongoing acute anxiety disorder, mood disorder, Conditions that on the outside of prison would warrant maybe a regular visit to a psychiatrist, regular monitoring of your medication and so forth. But in jail, it's just, you know, whatever they can manage to give that person. So really, it's like we've come up with a situation where we concentrate a whole bunch of the people who need the care the most into an environment where they're going to be stressed more than you or I. And they're also going to be expected to respond to orders. And I can't stress this enough. They're going to be expected to respond to commands in a way that's almost like the military, right? Uh, It's basically respond to this command or else we're going to escalate force against you. And it's a very strange place to put people who probably need to be treated more gently and with more compassion and kindness than almost anyone else. The jails that did provide data, did any of those jails have specialized support systems? Did they have social workers? Were you able to glean anything from the reports in terms of personnel who might be involved? You know, it is typical for a jail to have somebody who is a qualified therapist or counselor, maybe a psychiatrist. They certainly have nurses who end up doing probably more than their fair share of the actual work there on medical and behavioral health fronts. Typically, what I hear is that uh, they wish they had more people. They wish that they were able to spend more time one-on-one with individual prisoners and that it really can vary a lot from county to county because the culture can really vary a lot as well. And um, I talked to Pamela uh, Rollins-Maza at Prime Care, who is in charge of their behavioral health department, and she said, you know, sometimes you'll get a county jail that really gets it where they're working sort of in tandem with the behavioral health people and the nurses and the doctors. And other times it's sort of like, They're not. And at the end of the day, the culture still prioritizes staff security and building security over everything else. And so you'll have this sort of clash between what the behavioral health experts might think is best and what the guards think is best and not just the guards, but the people in charge of the guards. You mentioned that it really varies from county to county. Can you talk about any counties or one county where the staff at the jails might have been better trained, better resourced. Maybe individuals were making a difference. A critical mass of individuals were making a difference. It was just a different approach. Did you come across that at all? So one thing that was kind of interesting to me was I got to speak with uh, the Cook County, uh, Illinois sheriff, who oversees the Cook County Jail, which, of course, is in uh, basically Chicago. So, you know, it's a bit of an apples-oranges comparison. It's another state, but What's interesting is that Cook County Jail 
following basically some federal scrutiny, basically made some pretty significant and structural changes. And so they have kind of reframed the jail, moving away from a sort of military-esque or you know law enforcement-esque environment, kind of trying to make it less focused on compliance and punishment and more focused on providing ongoing supports for people. Because let's be real, most of the people who are in county jail, unless they're headed quickly to the state or federal system, they're there for offenses that are going to get them back into the community within a year or a few years. And so I thought it was interesting because Cook County was one example where they made a real concerted effort to just stop some of the practices that are considered to be among the most detrimental. Although my story focused on uses of force, it also is inexorably tied to restrictive housing. And Cook County Jail, that was one of the things that they have moved against, which is if somebody needs to be segregated away from everybody else because they're just immediately a threat to others. They do that, but they basically on an hour by hour basis sort of work to reintegrate them with the rest of the prison population. It's incredibly damaging to put someone away from everyone else, just in your own thoughts in a cell. Some of the psychological experts I talked to for my story just couldn't stress enough that like even a person with no past psychological diagnosis or significant profile, um, you can put them in isolation and within weeks, they're going to be experiencing things like acute anxiety, paranoia, maybe hearing voices. And so Cook County Jail worked to kind of limit that. They've worked to um, decrease the amount of um, uses of things like pepper spray and things like that as well. Do you know any more about the circumstances or specifics of the, it sounds like maybe a consent decree, but the investigation that got the ball rolling on some of these reforms in Cook County. You described the county jails in Pennsylvania as sort of a black box type of system where it's impossible to get information. So I'm just wondering how that Cook County situation evolved. There was a federal inquiry into the mistreatment of prisoners. And uh, it was only after, as you say, a consent degree that basically they were told like, hey, you have to you know, fix some of this. You have to change some of this behavior. And as somebody who's looked at the, as you say, black box of county jails in Pennsylvania, I kind of do come to that conclusion that absent sort of state or federal scrutiny, it may be difficult to really make significant changes because the State Department of Corrections does have to go in and tour jails every so often and write up inspections. We can't get those inspection reports. They wouldn't tell me how frequently they do them. They wouldn't tell me. I mean, they'd give me a rough estimate. That's it. And also, like, well, what are the results of those inspections? Are you telling the jail, oh, you've failed miserably and you need to do all this stuff? Or is this just a, a merely a pro forma thing where we're like, cool, we came through every other year like we said we would? So the Department of Corrections, in my reporting, really tried to distance itself from the county system and say, like, look, this is not our thing. Oh, but also, by the way, we do have to kind of oversee them in some capacity. So I think that would be an interesting thing for another reporter to continue to focus on going forward, because I think that's one of the areas where some sort of scrutiny is happening, but we don't really get to see it. And we don't really get to know if it's effective or not. I just wanted to go back to the records challenges and the lack of transparency on multiple levels on an ongoing regulatory oversight basis, and then more specific and incidental to your reporting 
This is still continuing though, right? Yeah, just as an example of how this stuff can just drag on forever in the state of Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2020, when I heard that Kim had been pepper sprayed by guards, I requested the video that guards recorded of the incident. So when guards are doing what's called a planned use of force, they will have someone there to record it. It's a way, in theory, of ensuring accountability and oversight and documenting that it's done fairly. And we do have access to that through our state's open records laws, though it's you have to file a different form rather than your standard right to know form. And I was granted access to this video through the Office of Open Records. I won on appeal. But if you're motivated to drag something on for years, <laughs> there are ways to do it in Pennsylvania. Basically, the county did what's called a de novo trial. They basically started the process over by taking it through the court system. So I have continued to fight for access to that video ever since 2020, and I'm represented by the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press, who's been helping me try to get it. But um, we actually lost, and then we appealed, and uh, so we'll we'll see how far it ends up going and if we end up getting the uh, video. But, you know, as you can imagine, the people who don't want to be held accountable always benefit from that or may benefit from it whenever so much time has gone by that the public may not care about the issue anymore. The people who are in charge may have moved on to other positions, and certainly anybody who was involved has had plenty of time to prepare for it. So it is a real challenge. I have to say I've been doing some reporting recently that's led me to a couple other states, and it's interesting to be reminded that the way it is in Pennsylvania isn't necessarily the way it is everywhere. It can be worse, of course, but it can be better too. It's almost always better. Even looking at very specific data points related to public access, setting meeting agendas, turnaround time on records requests, and on and on and on. Pennsylvania is often in the bottom of the bottom of the list when it comes to public access. Sort of bringing this all together, are there any final thoughts you have on this topic that you would want listeners to keep thinking about in consideration of the work you've done? And um, what would you hope someone might take away from our conversation today? I think the thing that was the most haunting for me doing this reporting was seeing that painful control measures were being used on people for failing to respond to orders that because of their own conditions, a reasonable person couldn't expect them to comply with. That to me just seems so wrong on the face of it and just so irrational. And so I think it's important to ground these conversations in basic sort of senses of decency. I mean, you know, that's why we're having this conversation, right? It's about just treating humans as fairly as possible, regardless of whether or not they might have done something that has now brought them into an interaction with law enforcement and with the courts. So I hope that people are able to keep that basic sense of, you know, wanting to not hurt people in mind because prison institutionalizes inmates, as they say, you know, but it also can really institutionalize the people who work in and around the system and keep it grounded in that sense of like, why are we hurting people? And trying to find different ways to limit that as much as possible, because it's definitely a very traumatic thing for the people who end up being on the receiving end of that taser or that pepper spray or that restraint chair. And they are going to be back out on the streets within months or years. And it benefits all of us to make sure that that person is properly equipped to function whenever they come back out. 
Special thanks to Brett for joining us. You can find the link to Brett's reporting project in the episode notes. Next time on Obscured, Emily's reporting follows forensic nurse Maya Anderson from Morgan State University in Baltimore. Maya is one of the leading researchers behind developing a protocol for healthcare providers serving people who present after an encounter with law enforcement. There's no person, no matter what your profession, that should have that sort of power to be able to destroy lives just because you're having a bad day. Emily will also report on how Maya and her colleagues are thinking about support in this space. We have a protocol for domestic violence. We have a protocol for sexual assault. We have a protocol for kids. Why don't we have a protocol for violence in this form? In the meantime, keep up with us on social at Cuvenda Media for more about Obscured and the rest of our work. Obscured's From Words to Weapons series is produced by Cuvenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. Our series was edited by Diane Hodson and fact-checked by Chelsea Zhu. Malik Calhoun composed the music for this episode and the rest of the series. Stephanie Marudis is Cuvenda Media's executive producer and Obscured's co-creator. And I'm executive editor and co-creator of Obscured. We want to thank Obscured's fiscal sponsor, Media Alliance, which is one of the oldest media change organizations in the United States and helps our podcast receive tax-deductible contributions. And we're grateful to Obscured's founding supporters who've made donations to support our journalism initiative. And if you like what you've heard so far, please join our community of listeners. For more about how to support Obscured, head online to cuvendamedia.com slash support. You can also help more people discover Obscured by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app and sharing the series with others. I'm Emily Previty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>